You know, in that song, it calls out to Jesus, says, what a wonderful Jesus, what a wonderful Savior. He is wonderful, isn't he? That your worst sin on your worst day in your worst moment has been totally and utterly consumed by his grace if you're his son, if you're his daughter. It's wonderful. That you can come in this morning with all kinds of baggage, all kinds of struggles, and all kinds of trouble, and yet he is a refuge offering you open arms. He is a wonderful Savior, isn't he, church? You can be distracted. You can be in sin. You can be in pain and relational struggle, and yet he comes in and he says, come close to me. Let me pull you near because I love you. He's a wonderful Savior, isn't he, church? You know, it's totally possible for two people to do the same thing for completely different reasons. You know, you might have one wife who cooks a meal for her husband and she's preparing the meal and she's doing it with like the utmost care in every detail and it's a special recipe. Maybe it's his favorite meal and she's doing it because she loves her husband. And filled with love and appreciation for her husband and the care that he gives to her, she cooks and as an expression, as an offering of love. And she puts the meal in front of it and her heart is full and her husband's heart is full. And they are drawn near as a result, right? But you know, you could have a wife that prepared the exact same meal on the exact same night. And in her spirit is not love and appreciation, but contempt and frustration and distance. And she's doing it not out of joy, but out of, out of duty and out of, out of frustration and out of just have to. You know, you could have a husband that buys a wife, his wife, uh, a give, not a wife, his wife. Um, that's a big deal, you know. Those indefinite articles can get you, but uh, he's buying his wife a gift, and he's buying it so he can go, and he can't buy a gift big enough that can express how valuable she is to him, but, but he, he has something, and so he saves, and he sacrifices, and he goes, and he, and he puts the costly gift in front of his wife, and he says, honey, I just want you to know how valuable you are to me, and this doesn't even begin to show it, this doesn't even begin to describe it, but, but I just want you to have this just because I love you. You know, you can have another husband that buys the exact same gift for the exact same amount. Maybe it's an even greater cost to him personally. And he can go and he can give it to his wife because he is giving it to make up for the fact that she is constantly neglected by him. And so he is trying in some sense to pay her off. You can have someone that is so filled with joy and zeal and enthusiasm that their legs can't stay still, that, that, that mere standing just won't do, and so they begin to dance. Or you can have someone else that is pulled against their will and forced to dance and are in misery the whole time. Yes, you can have two people doing the same things for entirely different reasons. And what every single one of us knows by looking at those examples and thinking of innumerable more is that one is purer than the other. 
One is more honorable than the other. One is greater than the other. The wife is not interested in a gift as a payoff for neglect. The wife loves and treasures the gift that expresses from her husband's heart her worth. You know, the, the same is true in our religious experiences. The same is, is true in our religious offerings to the Lord. That we can all be here and we can be singing the same song about the same wonderful Savior mouthing the exact same words and be coming from completely different places. One can have a heart that is filled with gratitude that mere speaking won't do. And so they sing it to the tops of their voices, crying out to the Lord, Thank you, Lord. You are good to me, Lord. You are gracious to me, Lord. I love you, Lord. And yet you can have another who mouths them or just listens to them and just kind of goes through the motions because that's what you're supposed to do in a given week. You can have two people hear the exact same sermon and one of them is anxious to get through with as little guilt and as little time as possible so they can pass, can, time can pass as quickly as it can and the other is hearing it yet as an opportunity in which they can come into greater obedience and submission to the Lord. Yeah, two, two people with two offerings and the same experience coming from completely different hearts. And what we're going to see this morning is that the Lord cares not merely for what you do, not merely for your exercise of external religion, but that the Lord cares about the heart from which it comes. That the Lord cares not just about what you offer Him, but how it is that you offer it to Him. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. You know, it feels good to come back to our old friend Matthew. After we did the Vision and Value series and we did all of the other things, it's, it's good to me. feels good to me to get back to some kind of, of normal. We've been in Matthew for some time now. I've not been able to preach it since before September when I had the surgery. I didn't even get to do anything from chapter 14. And like, that, just feels, that just feels unfair. So I may have to go back one, one week and just go through 14 again with you guys. Just because I want to be here for that. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 15. We're going to read the first 14 verses together. So would you stand with me as we read God's word together. Matthew chapter 15. Beginning in verse 1, God's inerrant word says, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he not, he not honor... He, not, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. 
It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. So when we come to our text this morning, we have a delegation of Jews, of Jewish leaders, of Pharisees and scribes that have come all the way from Jerusalem to Galilee where Jesus is ministering. It's very likely that the delegation of Jewish leaders in Galilee had reached out to higher authorities in Jerusalem concerned about the works of this miracle worker, this rabbi gone rogue named Jesus. And so they've most likely reached out to perhaps even the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to call in the big dogs, to call in the big guns. You know, I used to work at Winn-Dixie, and you always knew when corporate was going to show up, right? Everything was a little bit cleaner, everything was a little bit neater. Everybody was a little bit kinder. That's kind of like what's happening here. Corporate is showing up. The big dogs are in town. And they've come into town that they might put Jesus in his place. They've come into town that they might squash this little uprising that has taken place in Jesus. And so as they come in, they take issue with what they see among Jesus' disciples. They notice that as Jesus' disciples prepare to eat a meal, that they are not washing their hands. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking what your mama always told you, that cleanliness is next to godliness, but that's not what this is about. This is not talking about personal hygiene. This is talking about ritual purity. This is talking about being pure in worship. Now, if you were to read all of your Old Testament and you were to read it Time and time again, from beginning to end, and start over and go again and again and again, you would never one time find that God has commanded his people to do that. Instead, this was the result of a tradition that had been passed down from rabbis before, interpreters of the law, teachers of the law, and it had all been codified in something that we called the Mishnah. And the Jewish people had kind of taken the Mishnah and placed it on equal ground with the commandment of God. The teachings that have been passed down from them. And among those teachings was this rite of purification that had to do with the washing of their hands. The logic behind it was that, you know, we, touch, we, we can't eat of unclean food, we know that. We, we, can't, we can't associate with unclean people, the Gentiles, we know that. We can't touch people that are unwell because that will make us unclean, we know that. But how often are we doing those things without realizing it? How often are we doing those things and making ourselves unclean without realizing that we have done so? And so we better, in case we're at the market and we just like graze up against some barbecue, we need to wash our hands and make sure that our hands are not unclean. Just in in case we kind of rub elbows with one of those Europeans, we rub elbows with, with some of those Americans, we better wash our hands and rid ourselves of that filth. And so it was a, a picture of, of, ritual, of ritual purity as you went into the mill. And apparently what we see is that Jesus and his disciples did not put any stock in that at all. 
Jesus and his disciples were not practicing that in the least. And so they begin that they're going, they, these Pharisees see this and seeing them in complete disagreement with the Mishnah, they believe they're going to come in and, and pin Jesus down. But what I love about Jesus is his response here. Jesus doesn't go on defense. Do you notice that? Truth doesn't have to go on defense. Truth is truth. Truth is right. And so Jesus doesn't go on defense. Jesus goes on offense. Jesus launches a counterattack. They think that they got Jesus pinned down, but Jesus is fixing to sweep their feet right out from under them. He asks them, he says, what good is a tradition that completely undermines the word of God? What good is a tradition that is baiting you into unfaithfulness? In my mind, I saw this, this video clip this week of an MMA fighter. And you, some of you have probably seen the same clip, but this MMA fighter goes and he kind of sucker punches his, uh, his opponent. And so he does this like, little dance thing. He, like, gets, he, so he, he just flushes a sucker punch and he thinks he's got his uh, opponent kind of dazed. And then the next thing he knows, opponent's done roundhouse, kicked him right in the face and knocked him clean out. Like in my mind, that's Jesus with the Pharisees here. They think they've, they've got a sucker punch. They think they've got him pinned down. And Jesus is going to have a roundhouse come right into the chops and knock him out cold. Right? That's, that, how about that for spiritual counsel this morning? Huh? How about that for spiritual counsel? And so in Jesus' counterattack, he begins to go after the traditions. He begins to go after the tradition that would have included hand washing, but he doesn't even address that right at first. He's going to come back to that later, but, but he doesn't even address that right at first. He begins to talk about a different, a different part of the tradition. Now understand who he's talking to here. And understand what he's saying to them. Jesus is looking at religious people and he is telling them, the religious teachers, the religious leaders, the religious experts. And Jesus is telling them that they misunderstand categorically their own religion. This would be like going to a bishop in Rome and telling him that he doesn't understand Catholicism. This would be like going to a, a monastery and speaking with a Buddhist monk and telling him that he has no understanding of Buddhism. And if you want to make somebody mad, you want to make somebody angry, you tell them they aren't practicing their religion right. You go to someone devout in their belief system, committed to their religion, and you tell them they aren't doing it right. And man, you want to see rage? You want to see anger? And yet that's exactly what Jesus is doing with these Pharisees. That's exactly what Jesus is doing with these religious leaders on this day. You see, the, the tradition that Jesus goes after is one that is called Corban. It means that, and it sounds so good up front. It says that what I'm going to do is I'm going to commit my estate to the temple. I'm going to commit my estate to the Lord. So that upon my death, all of my possessions and all of my property will go to the temple, being symbolic that all that I have is the Lord. Now, y'all say amen. That sounds good, doesn't it? That sounds good. That sounds like a man or a woman or a family that walks with God until you understand how it was being used. Until you understand the way that these men were using it. See, their motivation behind the tradition, the motivation behind everything that the Pharisees did was allegedly to uphold the law. 
to uphold the commandment. So they would come up with all of these rules about the Sabbath, trying to protect the Sabbath. What Jesus points out is that they are indeed frauds. You see, the fifth commandment says that you are to honor your mother and your father. And they lived in a day in which there was no social security benefit. There was no societal safety net that was offered to the elderly. And living in an agrarian culture where you had to farm and produce and do backbreaking, laborious work to provide for yourself and to provide for your family as you aged without 21st century medical care, mind you, as you aged and as your back weakened and your joints broke down and your vision blurred, you were not able to care for yourself. You were not able to provide for yourself. And so what, was resp- what the responsibility within, uh, God's, among God's people what, within that fifth commandment was they were to take care of mom and dad. They were to provide for them. They were to provide for them food and financial support and resources. And so they would take large portions of their estates and they would sign them over to their families so that their families might be cared for in the midst of their aging and in the midst of their difficulty. This was considered how you honored your mother and your father even all the way through adulthood. But you can imagine that this was quite a burden to carry. There's great financial uh, difficulty and expense. There's great inconvenience. There's, there's a sense in which you can't have all the things that your wealth can buy you because you have to take that wealth and use it for mom and dad. You have to use it for people who are essentially just total dependence upon you that you are caring for in every way. And so what people were doing is they were taking this Corbin tradition and they were taking it and they were using it and they were saying, okay, I'm going to give my estate to the Lord. I I am going to take everything that I have and I'm just going to leave it to the temple. And when you did that, by law, it was against the law for you to sign over any portion of your estate to anyone else, including your mom and your dad. Now you could still spend it. You could still use it. You had free reign to use your wealth and to use your resources however you like. But you couldn't use it to help others or to give to others or to help your mom and dad. And so people, not wanting the burden and the inconvenience and the costliness of faithfulness, found escape in which they could go and they could say, I'm going to give it to the temple and I'm going to be relieved from this burden and I'm going to be able to do whatever it is that I want to do. See, it's, it sounds ra- it's rationalizing away their unfaithfulness, right? It's even spiritualizing it. It's saying, look, look how godly I am. I'm going to give all of my wealth to the temple. I'm going to give all of my wealth to the people of God and to the purposes of God. Meanwhile, I will not honor the word of God. I will, in fact, completely dismiss my mom and my dad. And Jesus utterly and totally rebukes them. He tells them that their offering and that their lives and that their tradition is deplorable, despicable in the eyes of God. That though they they champion themselves as being crusaders for truth and the defenders of the law, they were themselves in contempt of the law. 
Though they showed themselves as being faithful followers, obedient to the Lord, that the Lord saw them as being utterly despicable in his sight, wicked. And Jesus' rebuke of them is kind of based on two grounds. And I think when we see the two grounds of Jesus' rebuke of these Pharisees and scribes, we will at the same time have a lens with which, two different lenses through which we can kind of evaluate our own traditions. We can evaluate our own obedience to the Lord. We can evaluate our own faith with the Lord, our own interpretation of his law. The first way that Jesus rebukes them is that Jesus rebukes them on the grounds of undermining the word of God. Undermining the word of God. Now understand, there could be no more serious charge leveled at the Pharisees than this. This was as strong as Jesus could go. They were the defenders of the law. They were the restorers of the law. They were the ones that were the upholders of the law. And yet Jesus comes out with no uncertain terms. He says, why do you break the commandment of God? Verse 6, he says, you made void the word of God. In verse 9, he calls into view the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 29. And he says, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus isn't pulling punches here, brothers and sisters. Jesus is coming after them with everything that he's got. He's got both barrels loaded. He's got them in the crosshairs and he's saying the very law that you say you love, you don't love it. You call it into question. The very law that you say you uphold, you are in fact jerking the underpinning out from under. You are pulling yourself out from under its authority while of course you tell everyone else they should live it in their, under their own authority. You know, what they were doing is they were rationalizing away the hard teachings of the Bible. What they were doing is they were coming up with their own interpretations and their own rationalizations for how they could bring themselves out from under the costly, difficult teachings of the Word of God. That if they could figure out a way to relieve themselves of the burden of honoring mom and dad and taking care of mom and dad and at the same time making it sound rational and spiritual, then they wouldn't themselves have conceded that is a victory. That is what they were aiming and looking for. How often do we do the same thing? How often do we do the same thing? How often do we look to bring ourselves out from under the hard teachings of Scripture and the difficult teachings of Scripture in a way that sounds rational and sounds, that sounds spiritual even, even? You see, the sinful flesh, the fallen people, the rationalizations of men often sound better to us than the words of God. The rationalizations of men for us are often more palatable, more easily digested than it is the hard and difficult teachings of God. You see, we've developed our own traditions. We've developed our own traditions which we use to undermine our faithfulness to God. Which we use to undermine the costliness of what it means to follow after Jesus with all of our hearts and with all of our minds and with all of our strength and with all of our soul. We could name we could name several, but we'll just name a few of them. Perhaps you've heard said that you could share the gospel by all means possible, and if necessary, use words. 
And that sounds so spiritual, right? It sounds so good. It sounds so logical. It sounds so rational. Until you go to Romans chapter 10 and it says, they believe by hearing. And how will they hear if you don't speak? But why do we love those traditions? Why do we love those rationalizations of the word of God? Because they set us free from doing what we really didn't want to do. We love that saying because we don't like to confront people in their sin. We love that saying because we don't like to be uncomfortable and sharing the gospel with those who don't yet love the Lord. And so we hold fast to that tradition and hold loosely to the Great Commission, right? If I could just tell you how many times I've heard You're always talking about the nations. You're always talking about this. We're always talking about missions. Aren't there lost people right here? It sounds so rational, doesn't it? It sounds spiritual even. That we must reach the lost right here. And to that, I say amen. We must. But you know, I've never heard a person ask me that that was a soul winner themselves. That was actually sharing the gospel. What's the trouble with that? The trouble with that is that Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. The trouble with that is that he said to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The trouble with that is that God is calling people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And that he has sent the church to do his work for his glory by his power and strength and grace. It may sound rational and it may sound spiritual, but it is in fact unfaithful. How many times have I heard people say, well, I have a family that God has called me to prioritize, so I really can't be faithful in the church. Old Testament to New Testament, time and again, the Bible warns us that our families can, in fact, become idols, calling us into idolatry and not into faithfulness. How many times have we heard the tradition, I I can... I can be saved and I can be right with God and not be involved in the church and not be close to the church. What's the problem with that? The entire New Testament is given to the church. The entire New Testament is living in love with the Lord and called to be a part of his bride. These traditions sound rational. These traditions sound spiritual even. Brothers and sisters, they undermine faithfulness. They come into disagreement with the word of God. They undermine the very word which we have pledged our lives in surrender and submission to. And so I ask us this morning, to whose word will your heart bow? Will you bow your hearts to the wisdom of men or will you bow your hearts to the word of God? Will you bow your hearts at all costs or will you spiritualize and rationalize your desire for unfaithfulness? Brothers and sisters, let the word of God call us into account. 
Let the word of God challenge us and call us into faithfulness. Let us respond by saying, wherever he leads, I will go. Whatever he says, I will do. Because my allegiance is to the Lord and to the Lord alone. We will not indoctrinate the teachings of men as though they are, in fact, the word of God. The second rebuke that Jesus gives, the second grounds for rebuke that Jesus gives is that the Pharisees were self-centered and not God-centered. That they were self-centered and not God-centered. Their worship was based upon what they wanted, not what God wanted. I want you to see this morning that at the very center of our text, at the very center of what God is speaking to us about this morning, is he is speaking to us about the nature of worship. He calls to our remembrance, he calls to the remembrance of of the Pharisees in this day, the teaching from Isaiah, the prophet, in Isaiah chapter 29. And he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. It says that in there, Jesus tells them that they did this for the sake of their tradition. In other words, they did this because they, they loved how their tradition felt and what their tradition said. They did not do these things. In other words, for the sake of the glory of God, they did not do these things for the sake of their love for him. And as I read, as I read verses 9, verses 8 and verses 9, I shuddered. It terrifies me. Because you see, what we have in the Pharisees is we have men who love to gather together in church. We have men who, who love to, to sing the songs that they sang in church. We have men who love to hear good preaching. We have men who love to hear the word of God read. We have men who love to, to follow in obedience and in some sense of the word to, to the teachings of the Bible and to the ordinances and to the, to the things that they have been called to. Yet the Lord rejects their worship as being in vain. The Lord sees their worship. He sees the words that they were offering. He sees the things that they were doing. And he calls them wicked. Wicked. Their mouths were moving but their hearts were not Their mouths were singing, but their minds were wandering. Their their mouths said it was about God, but their lives said it was about them. And God says their worship is wicked. Brothers and sisters, what do you consider worship? What do you consider worship? Is it listening to some songs each week? Is it it, it mouthing the words of those songs? Is Is it attending the church once a week? Is it... Attending the church a couple times a month or a couple times a year. Like, like what is worship? What does that mean? Could it be that for some of us, the worship that we're offering the Lord is in fact wicked in the sight of the Lord? Could it be that the worship that we are bringing to him that is supposed to be to his exaltation is instead to his dishonor? Could it be that the worship that we're bringing is coming to him and he sees it as not bringing him glory, but instead is adding to our offense, adding to our account that we will give to him? What is worship? Is worship mouthing words or is it offering him your life? 
Is it, is it singing some songs or is it being so filled with adoration and gratitude and praise and awe that you have to cry out in the glory of the Lord? What is worship? Is it, is it simply attending a place that you go to from week to week? Or is it offering the Lord as a blank check saying, God, however costly, wherever you will have me go, whatever you will have me do, I will do that. So these words are expression of that. The, the sitting under the priest word is an expression of that. The, a gathering with the people is an expression of that. Take all of this, Lord, all of my life, all of my everything that I do and everything that I am. It is all an offering to you what about your worship the worshiper that God is honored by is not the man or the woman that is looking for a loophole in the wall the worshiper that God is looking for is not the worshiper that is looking for Jesus' teachings to be softened and easy and made more passionate, more palatable and more rationalized and more spiritualized. The worshiper that the Lord is looking for is the one that will submit himself to the word of God, by the grace of God, to the glory of God. Are you that kind of worshiper? Are you that kind of worshiper? Is that the offering that you have brought to him on this day? Is that the offering that you have brought to him in the songs that we've sang? Is that the offering that you have brought to him as you sit under the preaching of God's word? Is that the offering that you have brought to him? Because brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, if your offering is in some way less than that, your, your offering is in fact contemptible in the eyes of God Almighty. Jesus says in verses 10 and 11, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. It's not about what the life is doing. It's about who the man or the woman is. It's not about what they're saying. It's about what they're loving. Do they love themselves or do they love the Lord? Do they love convenience or do they love faithfulness? Do they love grace and mercy? Or do they love a show and being held in high esteem by people in their community? See, Jesus takes them in verses 10 and 11 and he flips the whole system of the Pharisees on its ear. This is when he's coming back. Remember I told you he circles back to the washing of hands? This is where he circles back to it. He says, you're worried about your hands being washed you're worried about whether or not your, your hands are clean for worship. In fact, your heart is filthy. You're worried about ritual defilement. I am worried about moral defilement. What's harder? Is it, is it more difficult to wash your hands or is it more difficult to be kind? Is it more difficult to eat the right foods or is it more difficult to be gentle? Is it more difficult to follow all the protocols of religion or is it more difficult to live with sustainable, durable joy in the Lord? Is it more difficult to be patient or is it more difficult to be uh, in attendance? External religion is a cheap substitute for the real thing. 
External religion is cheap. It's easy. It's a joke. And it is wicked and contemptible in the eyes of God. See, brothers and sisters, it takes much more for you to have the fruit of the Spirit in your life than it does for you to have the evidences of religion. Much more. One you can do under your own strengths and your own power and your own, your own self-resolve. The other is only possible by the supernatural work of the Spirit of God in you. So what all of this boils down to is do you love God? Do you love Him? You, you said that you love Him, but do you love Him? Have you, have you bowed your heart and bowed your life beneath Him saying, Lord, you are all I want and all I need and all I long for. You are my life and existence and will and desire. You are everything. Do you really love Him? Do you really, honestly, in your, in your heart, don't zone out anymore. Come back to me right now. Do you love God, brothers and sisters? Do you love God, friends and neighbors? Do you love God? Is he what gets you out of bed in the morning? Is he what sustains you on your darkest hour? Is he the breath and the mercy that allows you to endure the day? Is he the sustainer of your grace, the perseverer of your faith? Is he your defender? Is he your refuge? Do you love him? Do you love him? Not are you going through motions. Not are you attending church. Not are you speaking words. Do you love God? The issue of the Pharisees in Matthew 15 is that they are in flagrant violation of the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, strength, and soul. That they had in their lives idolatry of self expressed through tradition. Could the same be of you? Could the same be said of you? The kind of worshiper that Jesus is looking for is the kind that will tell the truth, even when it costs them the promotion, even when they won't ace the test like everybody else will on false pretense, even when it makes their life more difficult because they don't need all of that, they have the Lord. The kind of worshiper that Jesus is looking for is one that will live humbly, even if living humbly causes you to be overlooked and underestimated because you only care about the estimation that the Lord Jesus has of you. The kind of worshiper that Jesus is looking for is one that will love him more than the approval of their friends and the comforts of home and the convenience of unfaithfulness because the Lord is enough for them. The Lord is contentment enough for them. Is that your life? Is that your life? Does that describe you? In verse 12, Jesus' disciples are worried. They're worried because once again the Pharisees are offended. They, they are still detoxing, right? They're still trying to undo how they have all in their lives always held the Pharisees in high esteem. And now for the second time since the end of chapter 13, we see yet again that the Pharisees are offended by what Jesus has said. And truthfully, this is the calling card of the Pharisee. The Pharisee is always offended by what God has said. The Pharisee is always offended by Jesus' calling them toward faithfulness. 
And very often you all know that offense, that, that hard-heartedness is expressed through offense. That because we don't want our hearts to change, because we have resolved that we in fact will not change and that we in fact cannot be wrong about this and we in fact must be right, we harden our hearts to the teachings of the Lord rather than softening them to the work of the Spirit. Oh, brothers and sisters, how we do what the Pharisees do here. How we do what the Pharisees do here. How we hear a hard text or a sermon from a hard text. Maybe like James chapter 2 that I preached about two weeks ago, right? Faith without works is dead. You've got to roll up your sleeve that the Lord has given you the church. That you can roll up your sleeves in and serve his kingdom and serve his glory. And that salvation apart from work, apart from the demonstration of works is in fact not salvation at all. And that's a hard sermon to bring yourself in submission to. And so the Pharisee in all of us wants to cry out, man, when that preacher gets a real job, then he can talk to me. When that preacher has teenagers, then he can talk to me. When my preacher has this or that or this or that, then let's talk about it. But I'm not changing. I'm not wrong because life has happened. But brothers and sisters, all of that is totally irrelevant. The only thing that matters, whether I am faithful or not, is is that what God said? Is that what God said? Is it what his word has said? You see, you will learn a lot about the condition of your heart by your reaction to truths that disagree with your lifestyle. Is your reaction offense and hard-heartedness? Or is your reaction conviction and soft-heartedness to the Spirit? Is your reaction, I will not change? Or is your reaction, oh by God's grace, help me to change? And by that, by that, you will know in your heart whether the offerings that you are bringing to the Lord are in fact true and sure and and exalting to Him. This morning, there are no doubt two different types of worshipers here. Many of you have done the same things this morning. Many of you have sang the same songs and you've heard the same sermon for better or for worse, but the difference, the difference is found in your heart. Have you offered it to the Lord? Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father.